Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. Centurion Wolfius Flavius Flava, come and kneel before me. I await your command, Tribunus Pompidus Amoris. The barbarians of this accursed island of Britain have attacked this garrison and stolen the Roman eagle. Like a real eagle? No, the Roman eagle standard, the symbol of our legion. So it's a flag? It's not exactly a flag. I guess technically it's a vexiloid. It's a metal eagle on a piece of wood. We tried flags, but we carry them all over the world and they wear out too fast. So barbarians captured ours? Yes. Did you tag any of them? Tag them? Yeah, I played that game at camp. If you tag them, then they have to freeze, or you can make them go to jail. Are you telling me you let them capture the flag without tagging any of them? Wolfius Flavius, this is not an idle amusement. I require you to journey alone, assisted only by one reasonably cute slave, into the wild lands of these people and recover the Roman eagle, though you risk your cruel death at the hands of these savages. It's just a stupid flag. What was that? I said it's just a stupid flag. Why don't we just make another one? For Jupiter's sake, this is what I hate about your generation. First of all, it's not a flag. It's a vexiloid. Second of all, we don't just make another one. It's the Roman eagle, the symbol of everything we are. We can't have barbarians out in the woods dressing it up in pink doll's clothes and using it in puppet shows. It just won't do. I, Tribunus Pompatus Amoris, command it. I suppose you're right. You say I get a cute slave? Yes. It's the guy from Billy Elliot. Uh, Okay. We can probably make this a fun thing. I'm sorry about my first reaction. That's okay. I think it's the weather here. Are your sinuses going crazy the way by, Dar? Totally. So while Billy Elliot and I go retrieve the Vexiloid, listen to this show about the study of flags. And now his battle flag shows a snake wearing one glove and says, Don't stop till you get enough. Colin McEnroe. I have an entirely Michael Jackson-themed flag. All right, so uh, we are going to be talking today about vexillology. And yeah, we'll talk about the Confederate flag, but I feel like that's almost been talked to death, almost almost truly to its death. But anyway, we'll be, so we, there's so many other flags to talk about. Why do we only talk about this one flag? So joining us uh, a little bit later in the show, Alexander Petri, who has written the funniest article about flags ever written. I feel safe saying that, that there's never been a funnier article about flags. Uh, she reviewed all, the, as she puts it, the 50 worst state flags, which is to say that they're all terrible. Also joining us is Scott Gunter. He is a laureate of the International Federation of Vexillological Associations, Vexillological, I don't, Vexillological Associations. They, anyway, they don't give these laureates out like candy mints. That's my point. Now, he's a professor of American Studies at San Jose State University. He's the author of The American Flag, 1977 to 1924, Cultural Shifts from Creation to Codification. And he's the founder of Raven, a journal of vexillology. Vexillology is the study of flags, and we are now uh, graced to have with us, culminating our one-week festival of stealing guests from the gist with Mike Pesca, where we've stolen Ben Yagoda, we've stolen Emily Yaffe, and then we thought, what could we really do just as the coup de grace? How could we really finish this off, steal a guest in a way that really strikes at the heart of the gist? 
And we thought, well, why don't we just steal Mike Pesca? So that's what we've done. Because Mike Pesca, I think, is the leader in American journalism's embrace of vexillology. You, Mike Pesca, actually on The Gist with Mike Pesca, have something, an occasional feature, I think we would call it, called Vexillology Corner. Now, why do you have Vexillology Corner? What inspired this? Because, except for the Sri Lankan flag, vexillology double triangle would not make sense. Um, <laughs> right angle. I guess I asked I've, for that. <laughs> I've, I've always loved flags. And then when I found out that vexillology was the study of flags, it's just the greatest word. Because flags are really common and little kids understand flags. And to marry a crazy word, it's like up there with, what is it, chloroforphobia, the fear of clowns. It seems like one of these pairings of an overly complicated word. But the people who get into flags, much like the people who get into ships, it's like these people have a different word for everything. So it's the hoist and it's the canton. And I don't go in. So my take on it is I'm glad those terms exist. I don't use them. I look at vexillology a little bit like I do grammar. I probably can't perfectly diagram a sentence, but I like the flow of words. And I just like flags. So maybe maybe like my uh, appreciation of music. I pretty much can't read music, but I like good songs and I like to know about songs. And I like the and the same thing applies to flags. I'm just fascinated by it. Well, the other thing that Vexillology Corner on the Just with Mike Pesca has illustrated to us is that once you start talking about a flag, you you stop talking about just a flag pretty quickly, right? You did one, I think, it was Sioux Falls, it was some town that was <laughs> city that was redesigning its flag. Well, I mean, yeah. nobody just redesigns their flag. I mean, you have to sort of think about who and what you are. Right. Yeah, you got to you got to get into it is true. You uh, quickly use that as a jumping off point because that's what a flag is. I mean, I think a lot of symbols become symbols either. eh, Maybe someone was pushing them into symbolism or it just happened. But flags are physical things that are meant not to represent physical things, I guess type or fonts are like that too but they're really interesting and there are some flags seem haphazard and terribly designed but i think sometimes even more thought was put into the really bad flags like the flag of pocatello idaho which is just a nightmare morass of every sort of symbol you could think of bad flags think of bad flags like almost all the state quarters right the state legislature got to decide what they put on it so they put like three different symbols that go together so you see lewis and clark flowing under the St. Louis Arch, and those weren't there at the same time, and that's a bad flag. And a good flag, like the maple leaf, like the Canadian flag or the rising sun, is usually pristine and simple. And as the guy from Raven, a journal of exilology, will tell you, a child can draw it. So, But to communicate, to, to communicate with that bit of simplicity, it's a really hard thing, and I admire it. All right. Uh, well, uh, apropos of that, we sent some brave person. Who did we send into the streets? Who went into the streets for us? Somebody went into the streets for us and asked people about their favorite flags. And here's what came back. Do you have a favorite flag? The flag from Maryland is the best flag in the country. I'm from Maryland, but I'm a little biased. But we're the only flag that you see it on University of Maryland's football helmets and the jerseys. It's Texas, I think, they, they rep their flag pretty well, but I go with Maryland. Do you have a favorite flag? Yeah, two. The American and my Dominican flag. I like both of them very much. I love being an American. Don't like anyone uh, being that towards it. If you don't like America, then don't live here. I have a different perspective. I don't really like put meanings behind flags. I think Maryland's flag, I think, is pretty cool. I don't know. It's for me, flags are just more, it looks nice. 
I think Maryland's flag. Okay, I remember what Maryland's flag is the one that looks like a NASCAR flag, right? I think it is. Yeah. Um, all right. So it does violate the principle of a child can draw it, but it violates it in a pretty delightful way. <laughs> all right. So uh, those were voices from the streets gathered by our intern, Hallie St. Germain. All of our interns this year are named after Paris Metro stops. Uh, our, and uh, we're now going to talk to Scott Gunter. Scott Gunter is at, well, I'm not, I'm not saying all that before, again, but he's a, a laureate of the International Federation of Vexillological, Vexillological Associations. That's a really hard word to say. Vexillology is easy to say. Vexillological is really hard to say. So um, oh, first of all, welcome to the show. I want to begin here, Scott, with the, I have this notion, and it's backed up by a certain amount of reading and research, that Americans are especially flag crazy, that if you go to other countries, there just aren't car dealerships that are plastered with the Union Jack or the German flag or that, you know, that in other countries, the flag... <laughs> It's sort of there at major government office buildings and, and maybe a few other ceremonial places. But it, it just it's not uh, is the United States flag as ubiquitous and unnaturally ubiquitous as I think it is. You're quite right, Colin. It's we were the first country in the world to have a flag salute, a flag day, a flag week. We're the only country in the world where every single verse of the national anthem tells a paradigm drama around what's happening to the flag. And it's not a coincidence that it happened this way. Because I think an even deeper meaning of vexillology, beyond the more um, superficial aesthetic, is it a good flag, is it a bad flag or not, is that people will fight and die for flags. And vexillology is not only about putting flags in categories. Heraldry, for instance, was a field that was created to give an aesthetic of things that are prescribed. But the point of vexillology, as it was developed by Whitney Smith, was to move beyond that to really put flag studies in culture studies and to learn about flags to help us learn more about the human experience. So I would say that it's wonderful and interesting to evaluate flags, perhaps, for how much you like them aesthetically. But if you look at those responses those people on the street gave you, the majority of them came from personal identification based on enculturation. And so we were enculturated to respond to the American flag in ways very different that people in other societies were enculturated to respond to their flags. I like to put flags in a larger context of what I call civil religion, sort of a culture of patriotism. And over time, any sort of group that's trying to find identity and shared community are going to use rituals, symbols, together in in sharing and reconfirming values and beliefs. And in America, I study the shifting meanings of the flag because I see it as part of the larger argument over the shifting meaning of what America is. Well, that's a great point. And Mike Pesca, you know, so the, the benign extrapolation from what Scott is saying is that, well, so America, we don't have like a royal family or things like that that we could trot out. So maybe the flag becomes the placeholder for that, becomes the emblem of, of, as he says, a civil religion. But so the less benign explanation, but perhaps you can even think of an even more pernicious one than than the one I'm Mm -hmm. about to uh, body forth, is that America has so little capacity for ambivalence (laughs) or shame that like once we get this flag, we just can't can't stop waving it in, in other people's faces. But America is the only country that was founded on an idea. 
and a flag is an expression of an idea. So it would seem to me to go together. And where all the other countries are a collection of, you know, the people who happen to live on the island of Japan or uh, all the stands, the land of the Uzbek, that would be Uzbekistan, the land of the Afghans would be Afghanistan. You know, we're not about tribes, we're about this idea. And then the uh, people who've populated it, the horrors of perpetrated upon the Native Americans aside, the people who populated it chose to come here. So this is all, to me, the perfect, uh, the perfect recipe for a people that will love their flag. Scott, just to, from a sort of a standpoint of vexillology, sort of the most stark aesthetic vexillology, just looking at a flag, how it's designed, what's on it. Uh, I know it's hard to get any kind of psychological distance from the American flag, but is the American flag a good flag? I'm not one of those people who plays sort of the game of let's rate the flags, Mm -hmm. good flag or bad flag. What I say is everyone's interpretation of the flag is based on their own cultural experience. And what I do with my students is I ask them if they ever in their life had a feeling of, of, you know, really loving their country at some point in time. And could they remember when they felt excited or connected to the group? And then could they write down the details of what was going on? And invariably, very often, it had something to do with a flag being present and some sort of community-shared ritual. And we return to semiotic symbols like a cross or a Star of David or an American flag in times of crisis. So when there's greater social stress, when people are struggling over, as you used very adroitly at the beginning of the show, capturing the flag for their ideological perspective, then um, flags are going to turn up more often. Um, September 11th was a perfect example. Well, and, and Mike, the, the flip side of that is that countries that are struggling with something often become very ambivalent about their flag. So in Germany, the flag really sat in exile for a long time after World War II. And bizarrely enough, really, really was sort of the German hosting the World Cup in 2006 and then subsequently winning the World Cup. Germans started very kind of ambivalently and almost kind of reluctantly <laughs> waving flags with a kind of is this OK to do look on mm-hmm. their faces. And, and in Japan, similar. Similarly, the rising sun flag, uh, Prime Minister Abe, who's leading the first real attempt at sort of post-World War II flat-out nationalism, is out, has, has in, he can't even order it to happen, but he's urging state-run universities to fly the rising sun flag. Again, there's like this. I mean, it seems that, when, when, that there's no separating a flag from nationalism. How you feel about nationalism is probably how you feel about your national flag. Yeah, and in Great Britain, you know, their their international football teams play uh, as England, Scotland, Wales, and those are the flags that get flown. And when a Welsh fighter, I've been to a Joe Calzaghe flight, there were there were no Union Jacks; it was all the dragon of the Welsh flag. And I've even noticed that I, I've been to Jamaica, and the Jamaican flag is on government buildings where you think it would be, but in the sections of New York with big Jamaican populations, well, that's when you have to fly the Jamaican flag. So I would think more expats than anyone else have flown the Jamaican flag. You're right. We do have this uncomplicated, very American idea of uh, flags and symbolisms of our country. If I could jump in, I think it's, it's that we have to distinguish between the political system rules of maybe what the government says, how a flag should be used, what the code is or what it means, and the ongoing vibrant cultural social usage, which is not always the same thing. And you're quite right that over time, 
these things are appropriated and they change. A real quick, wonderful anecdote that explains this about Germany, because in Germany they could not use the national flag because of what had happened under the Nazis, but along the border of Denmark, because the Danes believe traditionally to have the oldest flag, it came down from heaven during a, a battle and helped them win the battle. The Danes loved to fly their national flag in front of their homes and their, their summer cottages. So the Germans who lived in the state on the border of Denmark wanted to be like their neighbors, but they couldn't fly the national flag. So they started flying the state flag of their area because they wanted to become part of this phenomenon. They didn't. They wanted to be flag worthy anyway. Um, I, I want to wrap this segment up pretty soon so we can get to Alexandra because we are going to play a ruthless uh, game, uh, the kind of game that Scott doesn't like to play of rating flags uh, in the second segment. Uh, but before we do, I do want to. I mean, as I say, I feel like the Confederate flag has been talked and talked and talked. But you know, America. One of the things America is is this place of kind of alternative flags. If you don't particularly like the way things are going, you can invest your interest in another flag. And one flag that's not being talked about as much as the gods did a flag. Obviously, this starts out in the revolution, then it becomes this specifically military flag. Um, Scott can tell us a lot more of the history of it. And Mike Pesco, one thing that we noticed uh, you know, a couple of years ago is that I think Nike tried to sort of tie the Gadsden flag to the U.S. men's soccer team. And so at a lot of the games in 2013, there's people wearing the, waving these, these Gadsden flags. And I'm I was looking at it and thinking, you know, if I was from another country, I already think Americans are a little zany about their flags and people from Australia come or places come over here to be camp counselors and, they're the, you know, every day begins with the Pledge of Allegiance to the flag and all this flag stuff, you know, and now that's not enough. You've got a flag with a poisonous snake on it that you're waving at me? Is that, That's the face you want to present to the world? Right, and you're taking this flag, you're taking it from its home, and you're going to some foreign site where a soccer game is being played, and the message is, don't tread on me. It's like, hey, who introduced the invasive species, guys? That was you. Uh, right behind it is the come and take it Battle of Gonzales flag from the Texas Revolution, that big cannon. Right. I think the rest of the world is like, actually, you take it. Leave me alone. Leave me out of this. But, you know, Scott, sometimes flags are almost... Uh, I mean, I, I think it's true with the Gadsden flag where it's not just a flag or it's maybe not even primarily a flag. It starts to be a symbol with a certain kind of meaning on it. Mike uh, did a, a segment, I think, about Donetsk or one of the one of the sort of post-Soviet areas that had a rebellion going and they immediately put out a different flag, a much newsier, busier, wordier flag. The suggestion kind of being, well, this, this isn't really exactly a flag. It's like we need a new symbol. We need something else that we can invest with a meaning that we don't currently invest right. in our current flag. Right, because just like language changes over time, the meaning that's embedded in the flag is not constant. It's not a given. It's multi-layered. It's complex. And so that's why arguments back and forth in a highly partisan culture about it means, you know, either or sort of misses the deeper level of meaning, I think, that's going on with flags. And a good, a quick historical book reference, Jill Lepore did a great book on the history of the Tea Party, both the original Tea Party and the current Tea Party, and to understand the shifting meanings of the Gadsden flag as they use it. Um, I would read it in the context of her study of how the Tea Party evolved over the last few decades. 
All right, we're going to grab a quick break. We're going to have some tea. Uh, when we come back, Alexandra's going to join us for some ruthless rating of state flags, the dark side of vexillology after this. Every flag in Charleston is a half-staff to do, except what? Except what? Every flag in Charleston is a half-staff to do, except what? All right, so we're back. This is our Vexillology show, a show about the study of flags, the discussion of flags. With us, the most popular guest on The Gist with Mike Pesca. Mike Pesca, he's a frequent contributor to The Gist, uh, a very frequent contributor to The Gist, where they actually have a, a semi-occasional Vexillology corner. Uh, and also with us, Scott Gunter. He's a laureate of the International Federation of Vexillological Associations. He's many other things besides. Uh, he's the founder of Raven, a journal of Vexillology. Joining us right now also is Alexander P. Alexandra Petri, who comes with no—she's not a laureate of any kind of vexillology association. She may be even, you know, be hunted for sport by certain vexillological associations because of the article that she uh, she wrote about state flags. I should say she's a columnist for the Washington Post, and she's the author of a field guide to awkward silences. I thought I should do one actually right after that, but that was as long as I really <laughs> dared uh, to go for it. So, um, Alexandra Petri, you decided to publish uh, a review of what you refer to as the 50 worst state flags, which is to say they're all terrible. And, you, and you, I think in your heart you really do believe that. I basically do believe that. And thank you for having me. I have to say, the Eagle, to the, Eagle of the Ninth shout-out at the beginning was terrific. Um, <laughs> thank you thank you for being the only person who understood what that was about. <laughs> no, I'm like, there, there's only one movie where Shenny Tatum has to retrieve a Vexiloid, and <laughs> that's, it's got to be that one. <laughs> oh, you've just made me so incredibly happy. So, um, so give us an example of a flag. First of all, why did you do this? I guess maybe that's the first question. Why did you do this? Well, I felt that there had been a lot of very earned and very serious discussion on the subject of flags and all the meanings that you all were talking about, the sort of different layers of meaning that it built up over the years. I mean, the extent that a flag is sort of a Rorschach test on a pole, all of that was coming up. But I felt that maybe there was room for some levity because I took a look at the state flags that people weren't discussing, and I kept scrolling through them expecting that one of them wouldn't be awful. And I got all the way down to, like, New Mexico, which I have yeah. to concede is a basically tolerable flag. I think New Mexico does have a nice flag. Yeah. I mean, it's just sort of Native American kind of simple and nice. And, and, and uh, so, uh, you know, and Scott Gunter, how do these flags come into existence? How does a state flag, how, how, do, how does a state get a flag? I mean, who, do, who designs the original flag? Is there a pattern? Well, like anything, originally when the country started, flags weren't that important. And over time, as culture shifts um, and people decide they need a flag, um, flags are introduced. And then over further time, for instance, flags turning up in schools, having a Pledge of Allegiance, this all comes because groups with agendas have ideas about some version of their state or their nation they want to inculcate or promote. So a lot of the state flags that are sometimes referred to by by people as, you know, seals on a bed sheet sort of thing. <laughs> uh, most of those that I would agree are not aesthetically appealing, Alexandra. And I did think you were very funny, by the way, in your column. Oh, um, thank you. I think a lot of those 
came at the time of the Civil War, because the Civil War was a time when the flag of the United States as a whole, that's when it rose to the prominence of preeminence. And if you think about it, it makes sense, because semiotically, um, within the Canton, keeping the Union the way they did with all the stars throughout the war sent a, a powerful message about the argument the North was making for having the war. And at that time, flag use during the war, behavior was also changing. To be a flag bearer was a great honor. And many of the states at this time um, felt the urge and the need for their state identities to create flags. And so they all sort of followed a model at the time. Well, Not always. These things aren't always aesthetically pleasing. The point I just wanted to make was, it's like if you have a baby and your baby really looks like a chimpanzee, and other people say, you know, your baby looks like a chimpanzee, you still think your baby is beautiful. Well, and people sometimes feel that way about their flags. No, I was. Uh, yeah, go ahead, go ahead, Alexander. Yeah. I was actually amazed by the number of emails I got saying, I completely agree with you on 49 of them, but I just have to say, Michigan is beautiful, and anyone who says <laughs> otherwise is a lie. By the way, I'm, I happen to be from Michigan. <laughs> it was yeah. just amazing with what consistency the one flag that I was wrong about was the flag where you happen to live. So I think you're right about the conditioning. Well, let's talk to Mike Pesca about your baby. Your baby would be the New York State flag, right? Oh, yeah. And that's a nightmare. And they couldn't get the Tappanzee Bridge on there. <laughs> like Basically, this. they would have done better just by putting a chimpanzee baby on the flag. <laughs> I mean, well, other than other than Virginia, which literally is one guy standing on another guy. That is so <laughs> weird. A corpse, yeah. Yeah. There's, there's a corpse. It's also topless. There's like sort of it's one of those one-sided gowns, but instead of being like a one shoulder, it's like below the shoulder. Yeah. yeah. So, so that person, yeah, the person in the gown has her foot. On a dead guy. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's not going well. It's a very aggressive flag. It comes on very strong. Yeah, no, it's like, yeah. uh, why don't they have the poisonous snake biting the dead guy while they're at it? Um, so, yeah. And I they, guess their saving grace is, you know, John Wilkes Booth did shout yeah, this very motto. Yeah, right, exactly. When killing the president. <laughs> yeah. part, of it, part of this, uh, this um, aesthetically displeasing aspect also comes because great seals aren't that significant or important in our culture now. But at the time when the country was created, the symbol on the seal was probably of more importance than the actual flag when it came to government bureaucratic documents. Well, um, you know, I just what I, know, if they were using the Civil War, so, sorry to jump in there, how, how could you tell them apart? Because it's all like you say, it's a seal on a blue thing. I feel like if I were from Kentucky and I was trying to get back to my regiment, I'd just go to Kansas and I would stay there. <laughs> well, the regiments would actually have different flags. This was just the people back at home. And it could be following the war. So it's like in that period following the Civil War, actually the cult of the American flag really took off, not coincidentally, in the period of what some people call American imperialism, when we started to spread beyond our borders. And this sort of connects back to something Mike was referencing earlier. Sometimes people say, some people set up analyses with a dichotomy a type of patriotism that's humanitarian and another one that's sort of nationalistic and imperialistic. 
I, I was also just a, a, a impressed with the sheer randomness of things. I mean, even, not to pick on the New York flag, because I want to give you all the opportunity to pick on the Connecticut flag in just a second. But as, <laughs> as Alexandra points out, Mike, there's like this little hat sitting on, on, on a pole that some lady is holding, and it looks like the sorting hat from Hogwarts. Like, what is that hat? Do you, do you think it's Rip Van Winkle's hat? Or, I mean, whose hat is it? It's like, well, wh- I got to tell you, I got to tell you, every year on New York State State Day, just people parade down the street as that lady with the hat. No, this is never. <laughs> no, do you want me, no one, you want me to answer about the lady with the hat? Yeah, but before that, I just have to ask, Mike, aren't there like living statues of that lady at Union Square, too? The people, you have to tip uh, them and stuff? It's oh, it's like, yeah. Cap. It's a liberty cap. A oh, liberty my gosh. Cap in the 18th century. Like the were, French revolutionaries would wear sort exactly. of Exactly. And some people reference it back to the Phrygian cap. Um, I'm not sure that those ancient people actually used it, though. But in the 18th century, the liberty cap was a very powerful symbol. And in a lot of the editorial cartoons that were created during the time period of the American Revolution, that cap was more prominent than the flag, for instance. Culture would look at that cap and it would get them emotionally charged. But because culture shifts over time, it loses the meaning for us. Yeah, haberdashery stops being the mode, and vexillology becomes the mode. <laughs> and it's now, so- it would be a tr- now it would be a foam trucker cap. Right. Exactly. But I, my, here's my one big idea with all the state flags. Isolate every eagle that's on a state flag and just make a flag of that. Yeah, of look, all the that. eagles. Because yeah, some of yes. the eagles look really depressed and kind of squashed down. I mean, they're not all kind of rampant eagles. No, these are ill <laughs> eagles. They're, there's some, like, North Dakota's looks somewhat warlike, but he also looks like an exact copy of the one that's on the regular seal of the United States. He's holding all the same items. He looks a little beleaguered. All of our eagles look slightly beleaguered, I think. Which is the one that's sort of vomiting out something? It's like... It's oh, God, yeah, the... the well, Iowa's holding something sort of delicately, but Illinois, Illinois is having some sort of problem. Yeah, it's like vomiting out a scroll of words. Yes, yeah, state and the, sovereignty, national union. Well, the pelican on the Louisiana flag, the baby pelicans are drinking from the blood of the pelican, which was an early symbol of Christ in Christianity. Is that right. why there's blood? I didn't yeah, understand. Yeah, pelicans didn't... traditionally were supposed to feed on the blood of the mother. <laughs> I was so disturbed by the blood. I never. These are all things I'd never noticed until I, I looked at uh, Alexandra's essay or wh- wh- however we would characterize it. Um, okay, I think it is time since I'm sitting here in Connecticut. And since I'm not the kind of person that can be defensive person who would write or comment to Alexandra, although I am moved to tears by the sight of my state flag whenever I see it. It, does, it has grapevines. It has a kind of obscure Latin motto, which most people don't understand. So, Alexandra, I'm going to let you. I'll just, I'm just teeing it up for like you. The tears of pride or tears of shame <laughs> i'll keep my tears to myself no i you know i think we all we i i i've it's never bothered me the flag never bothered me until you made it bother me so what what tell give me your take on the Canadian Basically, flag. What, you look at this it's got, it's got three like grapevines it's got some festoons and it, it, this flag is drunk and needs to go home and <laughs> the motto says he who transplanted sustains which you know it's sort of poetic, but makes you wonder, like, what were the ones that they rejected to get to that point? You know, like, he who mulched is going to check it for aphids or... Right. <laughs> I mean... I think it was, I think the rejected motto was, whoever supplied it denied it. <laughs> so I think we do have some voices from the street about the Connecticut flag. Here they are. Any thoughts on the Connecticut state flag? It's not good. I mean, it's not a great flag. Frankly, you, you can't look at it and know what it is, so that's a problem. You know what? I don't even know what the Connecticut flag looks like. And be completely honest. I didn't even know we had one. I've only seen it like five times in my whole life living here. 
So perspective on it, very little. You never see it. <laughs> yeah, not so much. <laughs> so, um, Alexandra, one thing that you did show me was that how many of these flags are really, really busy? Like a lot of them seem to be cramming a lot of information into them. I mean, Minnesota has this big circle and inside it, I don't, I don't even know what everything is in there. I couldn't blow the picture that I had up enough to show me all the things. And, and I agree. Minnesota looks like it had too many supplies for the project, but I, these all have this, the telltale signs of having been designed by a committee, because it's not just like one big striking image. It's like, let's put a horse on there, and maybe there'll be a guy on the horse who sort of looks like a starfish is attacking his head, and then a plow, because of course we've got the grain, and then maybe some coins, and let's also, like Delaware has similar problems. And Delaware, they couldn't even get the dress code straight, so there's one guy who's like in fancy attire and a little feathered hat, and the other guy's holding a hoe and looks like he's worried that he slips below the dress code since arriving on the flag. And and just every state has something like that. Like, there, there's muffin-looking things. Sometimes you can't tell quite what all the symbols are supposed to be. And sometimes it's just a bunch of stars, and someone has drawn a line between them because, I guess, time was running short, and they had to get something together. Otherwise, the boss would be upset. I, I want to ask both Mike and Scott. Uh, Mike has to go at the end of this segment, so I want to uh, hear him out on this. So over time, just overseeing vexillology corner and having conversations, I mean, you must have come up with your own possibly idiosyncratic do's and don'ts. Like, what, what should flags have? What shouldn't they have? So what are your rules? And then we'll, we'll talk to an actual card-carrying vexillologist about this, too. I do like the rule of sim- simplicity, uh, replicability. I'm highly influenced. There used to be a website in like 1997 called Rating the Flags of the World, and he did points off for words on the flag. He did points off for weapons on the flag, Mozambique not doing well. If they're trying to tell too big a story. Now, it's hard. Someone once compared flags to sports logos, and if you look at the old teams, your favorite team, the Green Bay Packers, there's nothing in that logo that says much except the G and uh, the B and some colors. Chicago Bears, same thing. New York Giants, same thing. Because they're confident in what they are. Whereas the new logos are always trying to to tell to tell too long a story, and that's I think the big conundrum of a flag. Really pare it back, and you can't say everything you want to say on a flag. You know, Scott, um, some states, possibly anticipating the sting of Alexandra's lash, have actually tried uh, taking little stabs at redesigning their state flag. And so maybe we could even talk about Oregon. Or- Oregon made a serious attempt at coming up with a new state flag. How does it, and, and I think enlisted uh, vexillological associations in order to do it. So, so how does a process like that go? How did that one go? Well, the way these things usually work is they're more successful if it's not imposed by authority from outside, but it's a process in which there's a sense of participatory democracy. However, even when you make things by committee, um, for instance, the creation of the South African flag, when you had the, the very opposed political forces in that process, it's sort of an interesting story. In the end, um, it was the State Herald who was doodling, who came up with a design that solved the issue for everyone. And both sides that were not being able to agree on what the government would be going forward in every aspect agreed to go ahead and go with his flag because they both realized that the new nation needed one symbol for everyone to unite together under. So I guess the way it goes with flags, a lot of them are, are very, the ones that aren't very beautiful or that, let's, let's admit, they're ugly. They were created at a time when the sense of aesthetic or that what it would mean to people wasn't considered, it wasn't as much of an issue. I think we live in a very visual culture 
now where people are much more savvy. And because there's a spread of a sense of participation in these things, there is a possibility to change things like this. And I, I, I agree with um, the principles of good flag design. You know, simple, um, no, wor- no words if possible, um, colors that are striking and will last with you. It's not a coincidence that red appears on more flags around the world than any other color. Uh, red, psychologically, I think there are some psychological connections to colors that we need to explore more. And um, but, but ultimately, it comes down to if you are enculturated to honor and care about that flag, you will. Um, Marines really love the flag. Of course they do. And the process that Marines go through in boot camp to become a Marine includes um, very strongly the sense of rituals and associations with the flag that will stick with them throughout their lives. You know, Alexander, he said simple. Mike said simple, but not too simple, right? I mean, Alabama has a problem with simple. Yeah, it's just a big red X, which is a no-no, and I think is literally a no-no when you've got a big red X that's generally like, don't come here, something's the matter. (laughs) All right, we have to uh, let Mike Pesca go. As we do that, perhaps we'll go into our break. Thanks to Mike Pesca. Listen to more Vexillology and so many other things on The Gist with Mike Pesca. We'll come back with more Vexillology. You're dying for more Vexillology after this. Our colors are the same There's a promise and a way With all the strength we have, we'll raise the flag It will sail against the sky Like a beacon in the night To lead and guide us back, we'll wave the flag of today's show shows Betsy Kaplan riding an eagle with an mp3 in its beak and a wolf wearing headphones, that's me, and a bird that looks like Greg Hill tweeting and three little muffins representing our interns Alex Dubin, Allison Ehrenreich, and Hallie St. Germain. The part of Bill Curry was played by a bear eating a badger biting a sailor. For show pages, articles, and entry forms for our Design a Flag for the Faith Middleton Show contest, visit our website wnpr.org slash Colin. And now. Back to Colin. And we're talking about flags. We're talking about vexillology right now. Uh, we have with us Scott Gunter, one of the lions of vexillology uh, and uh, a laureate of the International Federation of Vexillological Associations uh, and the author of The American Flag, 19, uh, 1777 to 1924, Cultural Shifts from Creation to Codification. Also with us, uh, Al- Alexandra Petri, who has dipped her waters, her toe into the waters of vexillology. Uh, she's a columnist for The Washington Post and the author of A Field Guide to 
awkward silences. I just do want to say one thing apropos of the Oregon Oregon flag. I think it might be the only state flag that's double sided. There's like a beaver on the back of it. Uh, there's like a it's like reversible pants or something. And there's something on the back of the Oregon flag. Maybe one of the reasons they wanted to uh, redesign it. But to that point, Alexandra, it seems to me as you looked at all these state flags, the thing that's most objectionable is probably the thing that would be the hardest to get rid of in the redesign. Right? There's there's just going to be. I mean, for example, you're from Wisconsin, and and so there's a badger, and uh, and it's kind of a mean looking badger. But yeah, it's a threatening badger. It's first to strike. Yeah, but you know, there's no way Wisconsin's going to have a flag that doesn't have a badger on it, right? No, of course not. But I think maybe the way around the problematic design elements is to lean into them instead of leaning away from them. So it's just a big badger flag now, or, you know, like, I think we were talking about the unpardonable sins of flag making, and I think even worse than putting the name on once is putting the name on twice, which Idaho has done. (laughs) So I would watch out for that as well. Um, And, you know, so which is the flag that has the the muffins on it? Because we can, maybe Scott can tell us what the muffins really are. Oh, the muffins. I think they're supposed to be sheaves of grain, and they're Pennsylvania. Right. Is that what they are, Scott Gunter? Are they sheaves of grain on the Pennsylvania flag? I'm from Pennsylvania, so I think it's a beautiful flag. (laughs) (laughs) Those those chargers, those steeds are really... No, no, yeah. Pennsylvania is one of those flags that, like so many of them, um, they... you can confuse it with a lot of other state flags. The, I think the other problem is that flags need to look traditional. And, and if they get redesigned, I mean, for example, I don't know how old, uh, Alexandra, that Colorado flag is. It looks like the Hillary logo. I don't think it, it, it looks very sort of like 90s MS paint. Yeah, it looks like IDEO or some company came up with it or something, you know. And you don't want that, right, Scott? No, you that, want that something looks- that stirs the blood. Well, I think, I think, um, Alexandra is exactly right. The way to get a community behind a new flag is to use some other powerful symbol in their civil religion that has meaning for them. And, um, for instance, these things can come and go. Columbia, the gem of the ocean, would have gotten people very excited to hear in the 19th century. In the 21st century, people don't know what that song is. Conversely, um, the Twin Towers are now a very powerful symbol in our civil religion, and I think firemen and policemen have risen in the constellation of symbols and, and values that are within that system since 9-11. So things come and go, and what often happens in times of revolution or stress, the first thing you do is look back to the past to see if there's something you can reappropriate. We're constantly reappropriating as people fight over meanings. The other thing that has occurred to me, Alexandra, is maybe we just have too many flags. I'm sitting in the city of Hartford right now. The city of Har- There's a flag of the city of Hartford. And as we, we know from the gist, there's a flag of the city of Sioux Falls. And I'm assuming most cities also have flags. I mean, does Alexandra Petri, does everything need a flag? I think maybe, maybe everything does need a flag. But sort of this, in the same sense that you have a state flag... You have it, and then you set it and forget it, and you know that if you ever come into a situation where you might hypothetically have to throw a parade on short notice, you do have a flag that you can whip out. It's like the tuxedo at the back of your you know, closet or something. But 
as a potent symbol that's constantly present, I think that's when you sort of run into issues because then you have to sort of constantly confront the fact that your city flag looks the way it looks. Yeah, the tuxedo at the back of my closet no longer fits, but I, but I get your analogy. And so you like the Chicago flag, right? Chicago has a flag? I do. It's got some fetching stars, although the... I was influenced by a friend who lived in Chicago and was saying, you know, but we have a great city flag. D.C.'s city flag, not so much. <laughs> but so it might be just another function of the usual local loyalties. Um, but I actually, I was intrigued by what you said about sort of the potency of symbols after, like, the Columbia uh, Gem of the Ocean and 9-11, because I was wondering, because the last time I remember as a millennial being super into and surrounded by flags was in those moments right after 9-11 when patriotism was on the rise. But they did a survey recently, uh, the American National Election Study, to see how excited we are about flags as Americans. And the greatest generation and sort of the silent generation are super excited about them still. But millennials, we're way less excited. We tend to, like, they asked us, like, how much does seeing a flag fly make you feel very or extremely good? And we're like 20 percentage points lower than they are. So maybe as a generation, this is a thing that's going to keep diminishing. Maybe we should have asked you how you feel about seeing a flag on your phone. Well, You're I more think, excited about that. I yeah, think Scott, go ahead. I think is totally right and onto something there because the identification with the nation has to be learned. And the culture of learning this sort of connection to the flag hasn't been in the schools and the other institutions in the same way for some parts of America, it's uneven, depending what color state you live in sometimes, because conservatives tend to cling more to these than progressives. On, on the other hand, the other component is uh, globalization, and people today are connected all over the world, and so the networks in which they have their identity are much more fluid, and there's also a multi-layered sense of identity. You know, if you're somebody catfishing, um, with someone on the other side of the planet, a whole bunch of different flags might represent who you're pretending to be. You know, Scott, as, as new nations emerge, though, and that does happen periodically, it seems to me now there's this whole world of people like you who really understand flags and flag designs. There are There is vexillology. Do, do nations tend to bring, I mean, you talked about South Africa, but do nations tend to bring in consultants now or is in, in the first, you know, fervor? It the depends. Pe- yeah. It depends on the nation, and it depends what they want to do. But what I'd want to stress about vexillology is that I don't want vexillology to be thought as heraldry, which is a prescribed system where someone comes in and tells people what to do. Vexillology has a bigger vision of studying the people who are doing that and evaluating them from a social scientific or culture analysis perspective, but not prescribing what to do. But sure, particularly smaller countries, sometimes I think which don't have a sense of being a player on the stage, will look with a sense of perhaps an inferiority complex to um, other systems or people who are designated authorities to tell them what to do. All right, so uh, Alexandra Petra, I'm going to um, take you and force you away from the humorist's favorite position, which is leaning against the wall, making fun of the other kids who are dancing, and, uh, and instead have you um, design a flag. So whether it's for the uh, Federated Republic of, of Petra or or your home state of Wisconsin or something, what what, what would a good flag? Look, what would your ideal flag look like? Well, I think it might have some heraldic elements. I don't know, get some rampant lions going on a field ghouls or something. But 
I'm I'm sort of intrigued by the idea that you were mentioning of uh, the catfishing person on the other side of the planet with other different flags. And I was starting to think, well, you know, if I'm trying to catfish somebody across the planet, what would my flag look like? So maybe just like a big pastiche of logos, like a... <laughs> Like a big Facebook, get like well, a Nike swoosh in there. Do something where every time I display it, somebody pays me money. I feel like that could be the most American flag of all. Scott, what were you going to say? Well, I was laughing at her, because, but I, I mean, I'm laughing with her, not at her. <laughs> and I was thinking, um, well, flags are shifting and can shift in meaning in times. There was a wonderful website that's now defunct that was set up by comedians in the UK where it was like Facebook, but you went on anonymously and you used a flag, and you tend you pretended to speak for that country. So I could go on and pretend I was France and say nasty things about Germany. Somebody else anonymously could come on as Germany. And they had to shut it down because it was taken over by a bunch of Japanese anime fans who um, wanted to embody the different nations that took part in World War II based to on a series of uh, Japanese writings. So they chased the other people away and said, no, when you are the spirit of Germany, you must be such and such. So they oh. had to shut it down. But it, it was a fascinating website while it was up because you could just go online and see how people all over the world anonymously would pretend and stereotype different countries and make a lot of jokes about flags. Well, we have to. I think we have to wrap things up here. We're going to thank Alexandra Petri. Her, uh, she's a columnist for the Washington Post. Her book is a field guide to awkward silences. Thanks for having me. Awkward silence follows. Scott Gunter yeah. is a laureate of International Federation of You Know What Associations uh, and the founder of Raven, a journal of vexillology. Mike Pesca is the king of vexillology within the spavined world of American journalism and the host of The Gist, a daily podcast on Slate. I just want to quickly say as we end, you know, one thing about state flags or any kind of flag is they're not for the outside world, right? They're for the inside world. So as you, maybe one reason that everybody likes their state flag is it's for you, right? Uh, everybody else's state flag looks stupid because it's for them. Wipe that golden tear from your mother. Raise what's left of the flag from me. Hey, Greg, what's the best thing about Switzerland? What? I don't know, but their flag is a big plus. Ugh, that joke is lazier than the guy who invented the Japanese flag.